Kevin Sistrom loved Kentucky whiskey. In early 2010, he launched Bourbon, spelt B-U-R-B-N, in tribute to his favourite tipple. The app let you tell friends where you were, earn points for hanging out together, and share photos. It was trying to do too much, though. Sistrom and his co-founder, Mike Krieger, soon realised that the photo-sharing feature was the biggest draw. Bourbon 2.0 was much more simple, a slick photo-sharing app with a choice of hazy filters to give images a hipster sheen. After a brief flirtation with the name Scotch, Sistrom quit drinking names in favour of a portmanteau of Instant and Telegram. In October 2010, Instagram was born. As origin stories go, it lacks the grim portent of Mark Zuckerberg creating Facebook to rank college girls by their looks. Zuckerberg's company bought Instagram for a billion dollars in 2012. Sistrom and Krieger have since left, but now the photo-sharing app is embroiled in the latest scandal putting Facebook under scrutiny in Washington, where the company stands accused of damaging the mental health of its users. What's the evidence that Facebook's platforms make children miserable? And what, if anything, should legislators do about it? This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor, and each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how harmful is Facebook? Senators have struggled to agree on such uncontroversial things as paying the government's bills. But Facebook is a common enemy that has Republicans and Democrats united for once. When whistleblower Frances Haugen testified to a Senate committee that Facebook and its subsidiary Instagram not only damaged the mental health of its younger users, but knew about it, senators rushed to proclaim that they would get something done. So is this time different for big tech? With me, as ever, to try and make sense of all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the US digital editor. Charlotte, John, we talk about plenty of controversial things on the podcast, but none so contentious, it turns out, as loose leaf tea. We've had many emails from listeners complaining about Charlotte's views on loose leaf tea, and almost as many emails from listeners complaining of John's constant dunking on Boston. So can you defend yourselves? I think for this opening segment, Charlotte should dunk on Boston and I'll rip loose leaf tea to bits. That should satisfy everybody. (laughs) On loose leaf tea, I hear listeners' complaints that they, in some parts of the world, um, it's customary to drink loose leaf tea. Um, I do not buy the argument from some listeners who wrote from big metropolitan areas in the United States that they need to have loose leaf tea because the selection for tea and tea bags is insufficient. I would direct them to Whole Foods where there are approximately 14 linear miles of tea shelves. Does this reflect a general prejudice against tea on your part, which many Americans, I have to say, uh, share that prejudice? I've been watching Ted Lasso, the great Emmy Award winning show, and he describes tea as pigeon sweat. No, I like tea. I mean, I think it'd be pretty hard. 
I might be fired, or should I say sacked, for not liking tea. <laughs> Fasman, what do you have to say about Boston? You know, I thought it was done. I intended this sort of knocks on Boston to be done in a spirit of good fun. There is a longstanding rivalry, as uh, many Americans know, between Boston and New York. I'm a de facto New Yorker married to a woman with Maine roots, and antipathy for Boston sort of comes factored into that mix. But I don't actually dislike it that much. I just sort of like making fun of it. I have to say that if listeners are offended by the tone with which John Fasman talks about Boston, you should hear Bostonites talk about New Yorkers. Yeah. I mean, it's way, way more violent. I thought you were going to say you should hear Bostonites talk about John Fasman, <laughs> but you took it in a different direction. <laughs> This week, we're going to be talking about Facebook and its impact, particularly on the mental health of its users. Of course, there's lots of controversy around what Facebook has or hasn't done to politics in America. And Francis Haugen, who's the Facebook whistleblower who provided the Wall Street Journal with some confidential documents, is going to be up before Congress soon to talk about Facebook's role or lack of role in what happened at Congress, the storming of the Capitol on January the 6th. But today we're going to focus on this question, which is very much before Congress at the moment, of what is the effect that Facebook has, Facebook and its platforms like Instagram have on the mental health of its users, because that's the thing that members of Congress are talking about uh, focusing on at the moment and potentially regulating. And just to give everyone a warning, we will be talking in this episode about mental health issues. So listen with that in mind. Charlotte, before we get into this, could you explain what Haugen and the leaked papers revealed about Facebook that we didn't already know? Well, there's been this open question about how bad Facebook might be for some of its younger users and how bad Instagram might be for some of its younger users. And what Haugen laid out is that Facebook's internal research was pretty damning on this front That in her characterization, that they found that 32% of teen girls, so about a third of those, um, said that Instagram made them feel worse about their bodies, um, that the small share of teens said they started having suicidal thoughts after using the platform. And that's worrying because Instagram is, is younger, has a younger user base than Facebook. More than 40% of their users are younger than 22. So they were discovering some of this in their internal research at the same time that they were trying to dream up a platform of how to get even younger children using Instagram. And together, this seems to add up to a company that, in Hagen's characterization, is really quite lost mor morally, morally bankrupt, and that they uh, put profits ahead of people. Right, Charlotte. And I think there was a consensus view in the way that these internal reports at Facebook were reported, which basically said that these findings are pretty much undisputed. Facebook and Instagram are bad for teenage girls, and all the studies say so. And I'm not sure that that's actually the case, or at least I'm not sure that the studies are clear on this point. So I asked Hal Hodson, who writes about technology for The Economist, to come on the podcast and explain what we do know and what we don't know in this area. There's what we should do and what we have done. What we have done is hold Facebook in front of Congress again to do the whole sort of uh, cyclical parade of getting very angry at Facebook, which is, which is fine and good. But really what we should do is use that information as a starting point to carry out actual verifiable sort of uh, academically relevant studies on this question. The, the problem with this research is ultimately that there is no control group. It's just asking people how they feel about things. And that doesn't actually tell you anything causal 
about what Facebook is doing and what Instagram is doing to teens or anyone else. It's, re- it's just asking people their opinion and people's opinions about things are notoriously not really to be trusted. It's a good signal that there might be a problem there, but it is not causal evidence that Facebook causes you know depression in teen girls. So what we'd have to do is take a group of however many, a statistically significant number of teenage girls who are using Instagram the whole time and another group the same size of girls who are not using Instagram or perhaps not any other social media platform and compare their self-reported happiness over a decent period of time, right? That is what we would have to do. And even better, the way we would do it is by integrating that study into Facebook's own what's known as backend, the actual code and servers or computers that Facebook uses to run the service. You can do one of these surveys from the outside, just sort of sign some people up and get them to, uh, you know, you guys don't use Instagram, you guys do use Instagram, tell us how it's all going. But it's much, much better and much, much, and the science can be much more accurate if you actually collect the data about the people from Facebook itself and run the experiment inside Facebook itself. But historically, Facebook has been incredibly resistant to allowing third parties in. Why is that? Because on the face of it, it seems like a pretty dumb idea for a company that's under constant attack, like Facebook is, that's being dubbed the new big tobacco, etc. Why wouldn't they want to build some more trust or goodwill by allowing external researchers to, to come in and look at their data? Is it pure control freakery? It could be the case, the irony of all ironies, Facebook's own internal research, which has now been leaked, which makes them look secretive, may overstate the problem. That's perfectly possible that actually Instagram doesn't causally cause depression in 30% of all teen girls. When you think about it, that actually sounds wrong. Um, So it could be quite an ironic situation that Facebook has been painted by its own internal secretive research to be worse than it is. And the way to find out that is now kind of in everyone's interest is to do these external studies. But you are right. The reason in the long run that Facebook doesn't want to do this is that science is an open process. You can't do it having Mark Zuckerberg having the final say over whether something gets published in Nature Communications or not. It's... It is a relaxing of control that is not commensurate with running a gigantic multi-billion dollar public company. Let's assume for the purposes of this question that Instagram does do some damage to the mental health of teenage girls. If that's the case, is it a Facebook problem or an internet problem? Because our counterfactual here is probably not people just not spending time online and spending time going for a run or playing tennis or something instead. It's spending time on other social networks or doing other things online, right? Unless we think that it's possible just to prevent teenage girls from using or boys from using the internet period. I think that, you know, it's probably worth thinking about splitting it out. There's screen use in general, and there's probably some interesting correlates there in terms of how that makes people feel. And then there's the, the use of specific apps on those screens. And, this is, and the, this is one of the reasons you would want your study to be fully embedded in Facebook, is it would give you very accurate measurements of what was being used when. I, I don't think we should assume that we would be better off if people were spending time on TikTok. TikTok uses, a, if anything, a more ferocious optimization algorithm in order to present people with stuff that they're interested in. Um, And, you know, many other internet properties do similar things. All of them have some way of optimizing the way that they present content. Because in some ways, all of these services, what they do is they filter out, you know, the morass of information that's out there on the internet that no one could read in a thousand lifetimes. And they give you something that you can swizz through on the lift. Um, And all of them have to make decisions in how they do that. And the, the question that faces Facebook and everyone is what are the negative externalities of that decision?
So, John, I think Hal gave a pretty clear picture there of what we don't know in this area. What do we know in terms of the trends about depression, self-harm, eating disorders since smartphones came along and we all started to spend a lot of time on them? Yeah, that's a great question. I've been speaking to Jean Twenge, who is a who is a professor of psychology at San Diego State University and the author of iGen, which is a terrific book about teens and social media and mental health. And she studies the effects of social media on the mental health of teens. She has found that girls, teenage girls, who spend five or more hours on social media each day are three times as likely to experience depression as girls who spend less than an hour on social media each day. So there appears to be a correlation, at least, between social media use and depression and acts of self-harm among teenagers. She also found that the associations are stronger in girls than they are in boys, She suggested this may be because girls experience bullying differently than boys, that with boys, the bullying tends to be physical, whereas with girls, the bullying is often social, and social media acts as a conduit for that sort of bullying in a way that it doesn't for for physical bullying. Yeah, I I think that's really interesting. And five hours is a lot to spend on social media, but there is other research, too, that looks at this question from slightly different angles. There was a University of Pennsylvania study from 2018 that asked students to continue their use of social media platforms as they usually do, or to limit it to 30 minutes a day, which is still a lot of time on social media, but not as much as they're usually spending. And after three weeks, the people in the 30-minute group, those who were limiting their time, had reports of lower levels of depression and loneliness. So I think that the important thing here is that obviously we would prefer to have a randomized controlled trial, which is the gold standard for any research in science, but it's very, very hard to achieve that in this current environment. And so the question for policymakers and for parents and for anyone who cares about the mental health of teenagers is what do you do in the meantime? How can you try to promote that long-term research so that we do have more concrete answers? But while that evidence is being gathered, what do you do in the meantime? What should policymakers do? What should parents do? And that's the real question that people are wrestling with. I think there's another question here, which is that what do you do? I'm not suggesting that Facebook and Instagram are like this, but let's just say for the sake of argument, what do you do if on a platform, 1% of the users of that platform become depressed after using it and 99% have a great time. I I think that's hard. If it's 50-50, I think it's pretty easy. And I suspect, although, as Hal pointed out, the studies are not in yet, the number is somewhere between 1% and 50%, right? And so how many people have to be harmed in order to regulate or or change a platform that a majority of users may be deriving pleasure from or, you know, more than pleasure, maybe something useful like Imagine you're gay in America and living in a small town and feel isolated. You know, perhaps you might find some meaningful connections to other people who are also gay through social media, say. So I think that's a that's a hard philosophical question, I think. Well, I think the point that Hagen was trying to make, actually, is that you, it's not a question of shutting down Facebook completely. There are some people who would like to see that happen or to have Facebook broken up. You know, we can get into the ways that to reform Facebook. But I don't think that this is necessarily a question of all or nothing. And she talked about ways to introduce friction or stickiness to the platform to make it uh, behave in a more responsible way, to make it harder 
for girls to descend into a rabbit hole of content that feeds them images to promote anorexia, for instance. So I think that's, unfortunately, those kind of dull details of how you operate the platform such that it becomes less risky for certain populations is important. Okay, thanks both. Well, I think we'll talk about possible options for regulating Facebook's platforms later in the show. First, we're going to go back to when a popular video game caused a lot of anguish on Capitol Hill. Before we get there, though, as I say every week, you should subscribe to The Economist if you don't already. It is the world's finest newspaper. Checks and balance listeners can get the best offer at economist.com slash uspod and the choice between a digital only or a digital and print subscription. In this week's paper, we consider what the Democrats should keep as they slim down the Build Back Better Act. There's a great Lexington on Dave Chappelle, and we ask why people have an accent when they speak a foreign language. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. It was a nine-year-old boy's simple request for his dad to buy him the latest video game that sparked panic on Capitol Hill in late 1993. Mortal Kombat so appalled Bill Anderson that he asked his boss, Democratic Senator Joe Lieberman, to take action. Initially an arcade craze, it was launched to home consoles on Mortal Monday, September the 13th. It sold 3 million copies worldwide in the first six weeks. Mortal Kombat is pretty gruesome. In the 2D game, players control humanoid characters with names such as Kano, Sub-Zero or Scorpion, who punch or kick each other to the sound and sight of squelching blood. The task is to finish your opponent, perhaps by ripping their heart out of their chest or decapitating them and pulling out their spinal cord. Joe Lieberman was so concerned by the violence in games like Mortal Kombat, he convened a Senate subcommittee hearing in December 1993. He drew a link between a recent mass shooting and graphic console games. Uh, A man on a commuter train uh, begins coldly and methodically to uh, fire away at uh, innocents uh, on their way home, killing five people and injuring many others. Violence and violent images permeate more and more aspects of our lives. And I think it's time to draw the line. I know that one place parents want us to draw the line is with violence in video games. Lieberman suggested that they could be inspiring a violent generation. Instead of enriching a child's mind, these games teach a child to enjoy inflicting torture. Lieberman's somber tone made him sound prudish, but he had hit on something. Once a preserve of children playing Pac-Man or Space Invaders, increasingly adults were gaming too, And while games were becoming more graphic and violent, regulation hadn't caught up. To head off Lieberman's threat of more federal oversight, the industry established the Entertainment Software Rating Board. Starting in 1994, it imposed a rating system so parents would know whether a video game was suitable for their child or not. 
Mortal Kombat received the second highest rating, Mature. The little black and white labels are still in use today. But Lieberman was wrong to suggest that these games would nurture a generation of murderous psychopaths. Studies have repeatedly shown little link between gaming and violent behaviour. Though Lieberman and co. couldn't know it at the time, the murder rate in America was about to decline. Still, this panic over the effects of violent video games hasn't gone away. The perpetrators of school shootings at Columbine, Sandy Hook and Parkland were all known to have played bloody video games, and politicians still rush to blame them. Sometimes, when something seems like it must be true, evidence to the contrary does not matter all that much. Charlotte, did you spend your childhood playing incredibly violent video games and has it made you the person you are today? <laughs> I think that the comparison might be apt or it might not be. We just don't know with Facebook. I'm not convinced that this is much ado about nothing. I think that it could be something that does deserve attention. One of the things that has been interesting watching the furor over uh, Facebook is thinking about all the other companies that have been compared to big tobacco. So junk food is the big tobacco. Big oil companies are the next big tobacco. Now Facebook is the next big tobacco. And it's worth going back to what actually was wrong with big tobacco to understand some of the challenge in regulating or, or thinking about how to regulate some of these other companies. With big tobacco, the cardinal sin, of course, is that it is hugely harmful. It doesn't cause vague harm. It actually kills you. And that tobacco companies knew this. Um, they knew this before everyone else did. They hid that fact and that helped perpetuate advertising practices and so forth that got different people addicted to it. And of course, big tobacco also is literally addictive. There's a chemical in it that, um, that, that makes it so you can't give up the product. And there, there are commonalities between that uh, fact pattern and some of these other industries. So recall ExxonMobil had top geologists who were looking at rising temperatures decades ago, and there have been lawsuits over what ExxonMobil knew when. Haugen pointed out that Facebook itself has the top researchers, that they're in a position and a unique position to understand its effect. But there are also really important differences. You know, the causal effect between smoking and disease and death is pretty straightforward. Even with oil, Oil clearly does contribute towards climate change, but oil lobbyists maintain that it's not just one source of fossil fuels, it's many different fossil fuels, and that any given company produces just a fraction of the world's greenhouse gases. So I think that the difficulty, frankly, the fact that we don't have regulations for those other companies, for oil companies, for companies like Coca-Cola and McDonald's, you know, the fact that regulations there are so sparse, points to why it may be some time before you have regulations for Facebook. Yeah. Also, at the risk of stating the obvious, one reason that people compare all these other things to big tobacco is that big tobacco has been cracked down on. So it's really not terribly revealing as a prescription, right? You're not saying this is like big tobacco, therefore the policy solution is the same as what it was for big tobacco. It's just stating that this is harmful and sort of throwing up a comparison of something that has been successfully regulated against before. You're arguing that it should be regulated, but that's the extent of it. 
Okay, thank you both. We'll be back in a moment to ask whether, unlike in previous Facebook scandals, and there have been many, lawmakers might actually do something this time. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. There have been many scandals involving Facebook and its platforms before, scandals over privacy, scandals over the spreading of fake news, anti-vax sentiment, the Cambridge Analytica scandal, the list goes on. The economist's Alexandra Suich-Bass has written about Facebook and its various scandals for the best part of a decade. The central question is, is this time different? And you can argue it both ways. A cynic would say that it won't be. You have one of the most efficient enterprises in the world, Facebook, against up against one of the least functional enterprises in the world, Congress. And history has shown that Congress has failed to act. During the Cambridge Analytica scandal, when Mark Zuckerberg testified, you had an embarrassingly wide array of dumb questions come from senators. The hearing underscored how little Congress knew and how difficult it would be to craft smart regulations. I think the other path of argument or thinking would go, though, that maybe Congress has had enough of this. And I I think there's two things that make this time potentially different. The first thing that makes this potentially different is that this case involves children. Children and protecting children's privacy is a bipartisan issue. And the toll that social media can have on children's mental health is certainly less controversial than, than most other things. And so I think that that might inspire some sort of action from Congress. And the other reason I think this time might be different is that there was a palpably different mood in Congress. You had the feeling that you were watching people who had given a company the benefit of the doubt and believed public statements about how Facebook was working to reform itself, how it was trying to change. Um, And then they have been consistently proven wrong in giving the company any benefit of the doubt. Uh, And so I had the sense that I was watching a change of dynamic and a change of relationship happen when I was watching that hearing. And so I think that might also inspire action. And you saw bipartisan agreement that they want to do something. I think the question is, what is the issue they are trying to solve and what can actually get done today in Congress? Alexandra, that focus on children that you describe, which comes across quite strongly from the leaked Facebook documents, is a reflection of the fact, I think, that Facebook's user base, the user base of Instagram, is getting older. And in social media world, that's not a good look because these businesses are obsessed with growth and with being, you know, always being the next big thing, even when they're as big as Facebook is. So is it a bigger problem for Facebook that congressmen have decided they don't like it and have the company in its sights? Or is the bigger problem this fact of an aging user base? Well, I think that we have been asking that question about whether 
Facebook as a company could be at a tipping point. A few years ago, I wrote a piece asking, is Facebook the next Yahoo? And I think that concern about Facebook being uncool uh, and less attractive to users because of people's concern about its impact on their own moods. And so people choosing to self-regulate and spend less time on Facebook or less time on Instagram uh, is a potential concern for the company. The countervailing wind is that as people have been spending more time online, less time outside, less time watching linear television, Facebook's position in the ad market has become even more integral. So it's you know now a nine, over a $900 billion market cap company. In some ways, it's propelled by forces other than its own success um, and the amount of time users are spending and where users are no longer spending as much time, which is on traditional media. So I think the it's more likely that Facebook will be affected by user patterns. And if there's a perception by advertisers that it's not where users are, then certainly they're going to spend potentially less money there. But I think that there's no sign that advertisers or investors are particularly concerned about either issue, about congressional action or user time spent. And and you see that with the way the stock is traded, even in the wake of this most recent scandal. Yes, it's down um, and it's trading more in line with S&P 500 than other tech companies, but it's still doing pretty, pretty well. Just to take it back to Congress to end with, Alexandra, If regulation were to be forthcoming this time, what do you think it would look like? Big tech has become a a Rorschach test of of sorts that shows what you are most concerned about in in the world. So when I show you the Facebook logo, what do you see? Do you see censorship and free speech? Do you see antitrust and uh, the competitive force of big tech and concerns about tech becoming too large? Is it that you know, Facebook is a company that violates privacy and and needs regulation there. And that's something that everyone has a different viewpoint on. And that's why regulation is going to be so difficult. Out of Europe, you see some pretty comprehensive regulations being formulated in the Digital Services Act and Digital Markets Act, which could come into force in a few years from now. But in the US, you have much more of a piecemeal approach. So in terms of the proposals that are coming out of Congress, you see some people trying to deal with the potential competitive threat of big tech. You see some people really much more worried about platforms favoring their own services. You see people concerned about the protections that big tech companies have when it comes to harmful speech and hate speech. No one can quite agree on what the problem is. So therefore, no one can agree on what the solutions are. And you see that in the conversations that I had on the Facebook whistleblower. It's quite interesting. People who are advocating in Washington for antitrust enforcement were actually disappointed by this whistleblower because they think that it's taken attention more to privacy and the question of Facebook's role in society and whether it's good or bad for children and taken attention away from antitrust enforcement and momentum there. And so even for people who are Facebook's enemies and want to see Facebook held to account, there's no consensus over what the priority should be. And the Facebook whistleblower actually epitomizes those tensions. Okay, John, so now we come to the hard part. 
there's a suspicion widely shared that Facebook and Instagram are not good for the mental health of teenagers, at least for some teenagers, and at least for those teenagers who spend a vast amount of time on those platforms. But the studies are unclear, and good research, as Hal explained, hasn't been done. But given there might be a harm there, what should Congress do, if anything? Well, that, I think, is the, is the $900 billion question. And as Alexander pointed out, investors and advertisers don't seem to care, right? Advertisers aren't walking away. Investors aren't walking away. What seems to happen when there's a Facebook scandal is that it's in the news briefly, the stock price drops, people buy the dips, and then it returns to full health. And I think that's because of the obvious gap here. People aren't concerned about congressional action because nobody knows what it would look like, right? There's no plan. There is, as Alexander said, a vague sense from lots of different quarters that Congress has to do something. But what that something is depends on what you're most concerned about. I think that's right. And I think also just to stay on the investor's response for a moment, I think that Facebook is yet another example of the limits of corporate progressivism. You've seen companies try to stake out this role of being not just profit-making enterprises, but companies that have a broader mission. And I think the idea that companies are going to act in the public interest, it's almost surprising to hear the consternation expressed by some members of Congress and even by Hagen, I have to say. Companies act in the interest of their shareholders. When there's this desire for companies to, quote unquote, do the right thing, is it the right thing for society or is it the right thing for their shareholders? I think that there is a question of self-regulation, right? So here, the experience of Coca-Cola might be a little informative in that there were never really regulations for soda, but there is a market for people to buy healthier drinks, and Coca-Cola felt that competitive threat. And they have been selling smaller cans of soda because they're frankly, more profitable. They're buying smaller brands that have healthier profile drinks. So, you know, I'm curious whether Facebook feels like there's enough pressure that they will actually start to reform themselves a bit, whether they will feel like they need to just respond to TikTok and become even more attractive to their younger users and perhaps perpetuate some of these harmful behaviors that have been witnessed, or whether they take a deep look, whether they feel like there might be a case to reform the way their platform operates um, to try to appease some of these concerns. I'm very curious about how the Facebook responds or doesn't. John, part of me wonders whether what's going on here, politically at least, is that anxious parents like me of small children I don't like the fact that we don't have that much control, don't have as much control as we like over our children's screen time, and would quite like Congress to step in and do something to make these platforms that the kids won't spend time on less harmful. Um, is that fair, do you think? I think that's fair. It also hints at the central paradox here, right? Which is that on the one hand, I'm an anxious parent like you. I've got a, a son who's 13 and a son who's 10. The 13-year-old has a phone because we need to know where he is, but he doesn't have social media and he won't until he leaves this house. That's just our rule. But there aren't enough anxious parents to sort of force Facebook to make a change. The same problem you have with climate change. You can make a lot of laudable choices as far as how you travel and what you buy. But absent big concerted national efforts and a framework in which to fit those actions and leverage them, it probably won't do that much. So on the one hand, of course, parents have a role in how their children interact with the media. But I think it's less of a role than people think, and it's certainly less of a role 
than politicians like to say it is, right? Because that shunts responsibility off of them. So there has to be some sort of pressure from concerned parents that leads to some sort of collective action. That mechanism just isn't quite there yet, right? The lever and the fulcrum and the sort of general path that that mechanism would follow, it just isn't quite there yet. I think that climate change is actually a pretty interesting comparison here, as is tobacco. Tobacco regulation came about because of litigation, not because of congressional action. In fact, there were a series of lawsuits brought by state's attorney general, and there was a need, there was clearly a need for sort of a master settlement, some kind of big agreement to settle all of this. And Congress had different proposals that were put forward. John McCain was involved. They could never come to agreement. They voted against it. Hardly so surprising. States went ahead on their own. It was state's attorneys general and the tobacco companies that came up with this master settlement in the late 1990s. And what that did is that settlement not only included lots of cash to help states pay for the health effects of smoking, but that was the settlement that had the rules. It had the rules around advertising to kids. Um, It had the rules around tobacco advertising on billboards. So it's worth remembering that it was litigation, not congressional action, that, that led to that big change. With climate, Um, There has been an attempt to use litigation to go after some of these companies that has largely failed because the drivers of climate change are so dispersed. And so the question with Facebook, I actually think that you might see with Facebook litigation have more of an impact than congressional action because it really is one company having such a potentially, they could argue, um, if the evidence comes forward, having an impact on, uh, on the health of Teens. So I wonder if actually litigation will be where Facebook faces some of the pressure rather than from Congress in the end. I have conflicted thoughts about Facebook. I don't enjoy using the platform. I don't use it myself. I had set up a Facebook profile a while ago for work and I lied to it and said that I was born in Reykjavik in 1904. And then since then, it's been serving me adverts for um, dating for aged people and and various uh, health remedies that promise to do things that I, I won't go into details of here on a family podcast. But I think there's a strange, slightly heretical argument for bigness and monopoly in this area, in the sense that if you had loads of different social media platforms all competing with each other for their attention, then it seems likelier to me that the algorithms will all go down the lines of just basically giving people the social media equivalent of lots of sugar and then giving them more sugar and more sugar. If you have you know, one big dominant platform, it's perhaps more likely that it can set some norms um, and can write code that promotes different kinds of behavior. So while I'm not saying that's a, you know, an argument for Facebook world domination, I'm not sure that an alternative world in which you have loads and loads of social media sites all competing with each other very vigorously, it winds up being a healthier one. Okay, before I let you go, it's quiz time. The Economist first mentioned Facebook in a September 2006 piece about social networking sites. MySpace recently became the most visited website in America, we wrote. Facebook overtook MySpace in America in 2009. The same year, 1.8 million people attended President Obama's first inauguration, a record. Until then, which post-World War II president held the record for the highest attended inauguration? Ronald Reagan. Uh, what about JFK? 
It was, in fact, LBJ. An estimated Hmm. 1.2 million people were in the crowd at his second inauguration in 1965. It was rather more than his first, when just 27 people crammed into the stateroom on Air Force One following the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Sticking with 2009, which bearded American economist did Time magazine make their person of the year that December? Not Paul Krugman. Bearded American economist, yeah, he's got a beard. He was Time's person of the year? It was not Krugman, it was Ben Bernanke, who then was head of the Federal Reserve. You're going to kick yourselves. Yeah. Yeah. He was given the accolade for his handling of the financial crisis. So that's null point all round for once. Equality. (laughs) I'm I'm glad to drag you down to my deaths. Welcome. (laughs) My embarrassing Facebook advert story is I have a Facebook account. I barely use it anymore. I need to deactivate it. Um, But for a while, I was posting lots of food and cooking pictures, and it started giving me advertisements for uh, weight loss programs and dress sweatpants. (laughs) I mainly served ads about loose leaf tea, so they clearly are confused. (laughs) Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you. If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via the usual email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. Thanks to our producers, Harriet Noble, Nicholas Rolfast, and John Shields. Thanks very much for listening. Stay safe. Stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance for you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.